0: Oh, Lord, thank you for your kindness in guiding us every step of our journey. You are so, so good as we sing, and that can become cliche to us. We can come to think that, well, of course, you're overseeing all things, but maybe it's especially this year that has caused us to step back and wonder and renew our own faith in you that without question you are faithful faithful to your purposes and faithful to your people and we celebrate that in the midst of all the suffering that we've experienced all the disruption that we've experienced in this year we affirm together again that you are faithful that you are full of mercy and goodness that you are the one who is all wise and you make all other plans look foolish. So we surrender to you again. We submit ourselves to your purpose and your plan. Even this week, Lord God, we will cast ballots. And while we cast ballots for a person that we might think is the best person to lead our country, uh, at the end of the day, when we put our, our head on our pillow, we affirm again All authorities are established by you, Lord God. You are sovereign, and you've been managing this world with all of its nations and kings and presidents for millennia, and you've been doing an outstanding job. And so we submit ourselves again to you, to your purposes, We affirm again that we will stand under you, Lord Jesus Christ, and that our ultimate allegiance will be to you, that we will love others who see things very differently from how we see them, and that we will pursue your kingdom with a greater passion, regardless of who becomes the president of these United States. We ask you, Lord God, now that as we engage with you as your servant Richard opens his mouth to speak, we ask that we might hear your voice again, that we might see you, that we might behold you for who you are, and that we might become more and more like Christ so that we follow him with greater faithfulness and that we live on his mission. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.
1: I want you to imagine this scene, <clears throat> a small coastal town has been warned that a category five hurricane is coming, <clears throat> but a man 65 years old chooses not to listen to the warnings, chooses to stay because after all, he's 65 and he, nothing's killed him yet. And so soon after the hurricane arrives, the floods begin to fill his yard up to his first floor of his home and he heads up to the second floor of the floods drive him to his roof. And all he has on top of that roof is a flashlight. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, uh, he hears a massive sound of wind thundering above his home. And then a massive spotlight shines on the top of his roof. And it's the unmistakable sound of a twin-engine Sikorsky helicopter. And then this voice comes out of the light. Mr. Jones, we are the United States Coast Guard. And we have come to rescue you. But instead of getting into the basket that they've lowered down for him, he says the light is so bright, he can't see the letters on the side of the helicopter, and he doesn't know if it's the Coast Guard or not. So he chooses to stay on the roof, which proves to be a fatal decision. Insane story. Not really. John chapter 8, you read something quite familiar. Jesus Christ performs countless miracles, speaks, never, in, never heard before wisdom out of his mouth, says that he's the light of the world that's coming to save Israel and all the earth from its sin. The light of heaven could not have shined more brightly through Jesus Christ, and all of the leaders and the people said, we can't make out who you are, and we're going to stay in our sin. If you like outlines, it's a pretty complicated one today. Jesus claims, people deny, Jesus warns. Let's look at the claim that started all of this off. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he's saying there is no other light. It's me or darkness. There is no backup quarterback for this. You either see with my light or the world will be in darkness. I am the only one that has truth and hope the world. I'm the only one that can explain God. I'm the only one who can take you to God. There is no other light. It is a massive claim. With love in his eyes, he says, I'm the light of the world. I can free you from moral addiction. I can free you. I'm the light of the world. I can free you from theological confusion. I'm the light of the world. I can free you from human despair. No sooner did he make that claim, did his opponents begin to argue with him basically saying, uh uh-uh. This is how it sounds in English. (laughs) The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness and your testimony is not valid. This is the depth of their argument. Hey, we have more people on our side than you do. We have to be right. Instead of considering, could his claim possibly be true They're going with the philosophy of the world that the majority wins. They sort of hold the mindset that if all 7.3 billion people were on one side of the chasm and God were on the other side of the chasm, that if they said there is no God just because 7.3 billion people said it, looking over there at God would say he doesn't exist just because 7.3 billion people said it. Be careful about believing you're right just because you can find a bunch of loud people to agree with you. It doesn't make you right. It just makes you loud. So their attack is you can't be right because there are so many loud voices and you only have one voice. Jesus says, not so fast. It's not just one voice making this claim that I am the light of the world. And so he takes them or they should have remembered, they already had this conversation once in John chapter 5. There is another, it's not just me, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You sent to John, and he's testified to this truth, and I have testimony weightier than that of John. The very works that I'm doing testify the Father has sent me. So he's saying, I said I'm the light of the world, The most famous prophet in the world, John the Baptist, says I'm the light of the world. And the miracles that have never been done by anybody in the whole history of civilization, they also testify that I am the light of the world. So he's already gone there with them, already said I have proof that this is not my singular voice on my own. But the religious leaders chose not to remember this conversation, so they go back to their same argument. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. This is amazing. He just covered that. Appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So since this is the second time that Jesus has been confronted with this thing of, Hey, you're making this claim on your own. He goes back with a very unique counter to that this time, not the previous John 5 counter. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and where I am going. So Jesus says, four reasons. I'm the Messiah, the Savior, the deliverer of the universe. John the Baptist said I am. My miracles say I am, plus I got two advantages on you. I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. So the world that I came from testifies. The world that I'm going to testifies that I am the light of the world. And he says, hey, broskies, you have no idea where I'm from or where I'm going which again puts them at a disadvantage. So when Jesus says, I came from a world before this world, and I'm going back to a world that supersedes this world, it is a claim to his eternality. So basically what he was saying is, because I belong to an eternal world, I have perfect knowledge. Because you belong to a temporal world, you have imperfect knowledge. When Jesus says, um, you don't really know the world I came from, I think he's also, because we just know this about him, playing around with him a little bit, a play on words, because one of the things they, one of the problems they had with Jesus was his birthplace. They so much didn't want him to be the Messiah that they were going to argue about anything. And so in the previous chapter, they had this argument about where are you from? How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does, does not Scripture say the Messiah... Remember, this is the question. You don't know where I'm from. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So, yeah, this is crazy going there because everybody knew that Jesus grew up in Galilee. But if anybody would have done their record study... They would have found out he was born. It was an easy thing to look up that he was born in Bethlehem. But you know what's interesting? When you go into an argument with your mind already made up, those kind of things called facts don't matter. Because you so much want to arrive at this conclusion, the facts become really actually inconvenient. So basically what he's saying is you don't even know the basic things in life about my earthly origin. Therefore, you are unqualified to talk about eternal realities. If you can't even get my earthly birthplace, don't lecture anybody in Jerusalem on eternity. You are self-appointed experts, and you have unreliable knowledge. Now, Jesus moves here to the second defense of why he is the light of the world, not just because he came from an eternal world, but because he lives, has eternal relationship with somebody in that world. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. So I don't just live in an eternal world. I have a relationship with the eternal Father, and he's the one that sent me to earth. Now, I want to look at this statement because it could be a little bit misunderstood, especially how it begins when Jesus says, you judge by human standards. So he's basically telling them that you have appointed yourself as judges over the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel, and you're like people who are trying to find out if a, if a wall is straight and the two by four that you're leaning against it is crooked. You yourself, your standards are wrong. And therefore, there's no way you can help other people know the right standards. Now, the second part of the verse is interesting when he says, you judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. What's he mean by that? Well, let me just tell you, if you're new to Christianity, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is sometimes figuring out what something does not mean before you get to what it does mean. See, is Jesus saying, I don't judge? (laughs) Because that's exactly how people, they love that kind of Jesus. I, I don't judge. He's the only one who judges. That was settled earlier in the book of John as well. John five twenty-two. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the scripture is very clear, both in John and in the book of Revelation. When the judgment of the world finally takes place, it will all be done through Jesus Christ. He's earned the right to judge everybody because he, he became a human, so he can judge all humans. He lived as a perfect human, so he could judge all humans. He was a human who conquered death by his resurrection, so he has the right to judge all humanity. He's earned the right that the Father has given him. So now let's look at that verse again. You judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. So it doesn't mean that he's not come to judge, but what he really means is, I don't want to judge. Listen, here's what he's saying. You have imperfect knowledge, and you love judging people. I have perfect knowledge, and I don't want to judge anybody, but save them all. It's beautiful I didn't come to judge I came to save And all you have come to do With your imperfect knowledge Is to judge Well because these listeners so Were hardened in hardened their heart He did say But there will come a day When I do judge And now I need to warn you About that But if I do judge My decisions are true Because I'm not alone I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I just love Jesus. He's going all Bible on them because they're going all Bible on him. Because they're already saying, hey, you can't, uh, you know, there's an Old Testament law that says there has to be at least two witnesses. Can't be any of this rubbish we hear nowadays about, well, well, there's a a major... um, Anonymous witness has come with a, a confirmed testimony about, no, in the Old Testament, somebody had to man up, say your name, had to be two people, before a story was true. It's in Deuteronomy 19. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime. A matter must be established by the testimony of two, and even preferably three witnesses. So, Jesus is saying, I need another witness if I'm going to claim to be the light of the world, the savior, so he said i've got it here's here's my here's the other witness. This is not bad when you're looking for somebody else in the courtroom to corroborate your story. I am one who testifies for myself, and the other witness is the father he's backing up my story, the Father who sent me now it is amazing when you read the book of john uh, uh How many times Jesus refers to himself, sort of gives him this title as, I have been sent by the Father. Three times in John 8, I've been sent. And then four additional times, in addition to that, he says, in relation to the Father, I have come from the Father, I'm returning to the Father, uh, I've been sent by the Father, and I speak for the Father. So seven times he's saying what I'm saying is true, basically because of the second witness in the courtroom, the Father. Now, when you read the book of uh, John, the reason I love this particular gospel is sometimes after Jesus says something profound like this, I mean, many times in the book of John, he'll say something profound and then they respond with something utterly ridiculous, almost borderline insane, and sometimes very rude. And this is one of the rude cases. Then they ask him, so where's your daddy? Now, this was an insult. Because everybody knew that there was talk about the birth of Jesus. By this time, probably Joseph, his earthly father, was dead. There's no mention of him anywhere in the Gospels from really much the birth uh, time on. So, where's your father? And what they're saying is hey, isn't it a rumor that Mary was pregnant before she was married? Isn't that true? Where's your father? And it is true that Mary is pregnant because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and placed in her womb the substance of God, deity mingled with a human egg and produced Jesus Christ. That's his father. So they're insulting not just Christ, they're insulting God the Father and the virgin birth because God was his true father, his ultimate father, then Jesus began to focus on questions of the Father. You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You know what Jesus is telling them here? You claim, being Old Testament scholars, if God, the Father of the Old Testament, walked straight up to you in front of your face, you wouldn't recognize God. Filled with Bible knowledge, church attendance, you don't know God. That's what he's telling. You'll know the Father. So how did he know they didn't know the Father? Because if you love God the Father, you will love God. God the Son, because they are one and the same in substance. If you know God, you will marvel at Jesus. To love one is to love both. So that's what Jesus is getting at here. He is God. (laughs) He is God. And for a few years, God lived out his life on earth in the Son, And that was what almost got him killed in John chapter 5. They tried all the more to kill him. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, you need to understand what he's saying. I'm God. I mean, that's just, it's not just some beautiful poetic thing. I'm the light of the world. I'm God. And this is why people want to kill Jesus. When he claims to be supreme. The world likes Jesus if he'll, do, if he'll conduct children's camps, stock food pantries, and, cu- and crush a beer can on his head at a party. That's the kind of Jesus the world likes. But when he stands alone and says, I am God, I am supreme, and I am worthy of your entire life's devotion, that's the Jesus the world wants to kill. And they would have killed him, but it wasn't his time, John chapter 8. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Is that not comforting? Missionary, courageous evangelist. I love what one missionary of the past says, We are immortal until our work on earth is done. wasn't time for Jesus to die because there were going to be more warnings, more teachings, more bringing people to him, which we'll even see as we wrap this up soon. But here's where the warnings begin. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away. You will look for me. You will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, when Jesus says you're going to die in your sin, it's not not negative, not harsh. That's extraordinarily loving. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sin. That's like a doctor telling an alcoholic, if you don't quit drinking liquor, you will destroy your liver. That's a loving thing from the mouth of a doctor. That warning, warnings, divine warnings are filled with love. The only reason they can't go to heaven is they're not believing, not because of their sin, but because of their unbelief. Belief. And as I said, every time Jesus says something big time profound like this, they respond with something ridiculous. So he said, you can't go to heaven because you don't believe. So here it comes. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? This is unbelievable. Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? How do you get there? The crowds were so blind to the truth that was coming out of the mouth of Jesus that they were literally saying to themselves, I think it the, what he's trying to say here is he's created so much tension and now the crowds are working against them. He's going to go away and kill himself. April 29th or April, April 30th, 1945, 3.15 p.m. Adolf Hitler, history's greatest coward, entered into a bunker, and took his life. The day before, April 29th, American soldiers had freed all the Jewish prisoners at Dachau, and now, one day later, the Russians were invading Berlin, artillery was everywhere, and just a few feet below the road surface was Hitler and his bunker. In six years, he had created bloody catastrophe all over Europe, and now, like a coward, puts a gun to his head. And kills himself. And so now these people are saying, hey, are you going to be like Hitler? And kill yourself? Coward? It's a very derogatory comment on their part. And then Jesus says, nope. I'm, when I say I, you can't go where I'm going, not because I'm going to die. but Because you don't belong to me. But he continued, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. He's basically saying to these people, the reason why you cannot go where I'm going to that other world is the world owns you. You're strapped to it. Its values are your values. You belong to the world, and unless you place your faith in me, You will never be able to go to my world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. Light of the world, Savior, Deliverer, God. You'll die in your sins if you don't believe that. Here we go again. Get ready. Yeah, I think you got a little rhythm going now in the book of John. He says something profound. That's like, that causes me a little bit of tremor. And they say... Their response, now, who are you? It's unbelievable. He'd already told them, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the light of the world. I am living water that satisfies everybody's thirst. And yet they're saying, hey, 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 could we see some credentials? You mean like my miracles? Who are you? Look at the Lord's response. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. But not one more explanation here. No more explaining himself to this crowd. Why? Because Jesus does not commit himself to willful unbelief. Once he saw that they were unwilling to believe from this point on, he just began to talk about judgment. I have much to say, verse 26 about judgment of you. And the rest of the chapter is an explanation of judgment. I've had many people in my life, especially in 2020, say it's just not right. It's not effective to talk about judgment. Let me tell you something. If you are going to lead like Jesus, you will talk about judgment. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I will tell the world. Jesus Christ never made a decision about what to say based on anybody's reaction. He never made a decision of what he would say, of thinking, calculating, he said, what will I gain if I say this, or what will I lose if I say this? You know what that's called? character. You just say it because the Father said, say it. How about you? I bet you can say in your life, there's been times in your life where you've come upon a situation, and because you became afraid, you remained silent, or because you wanted to flatter somebody for your gain, you said something that wasn't true. Jesus never made decisions based on the positive or never negative reactions of his comments. Of course, we're not surprised to see their response one more time. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. Why? Because they already had these theological lens on there that I only see what I want to see. That's why they didn't know he was talking about the father. And right at this point, and right at this point when it looked like Unbelievable and would like the light of the world was going to leave them forever in darkness. He shines on them one more time in grace and mercy. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Even as he spoke, many believed. Do you know why they believed? Because he began talking to them about the most powerful and compelling force in the world. He began talking to them about his death. The magnet of the universe, the magnet of history, the black hole of the world, pulls men and unbelievers and blind people, into its saving power. Many have resisted all the arguments, but they can't resist when they look at the cross. I was at my daughter's house yesterday cleaning up in the backyard, and there was one particular tree or bush. I don't even really know what to call it, but it was just nothing but thorns, and I cut it and cut it and cut it. I was so careful, and, and even despite wearing thick gloves, I continued to just cut my fingers as those thorns went right through those gloves. And over and over again, I would just look at that stick with all those thorns, and I would say, Jesus, thank you for wearing those thorns. Can I ask you a question? When is the last time you have said those words to Jesus? Thank you for wearing those thorns On your brow. Those thorns, they unlock all the chains of guilt. Those thorns, they open the gate of heaven. Those thorns cause you to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. Those thorns cause a hundred thousand sins in your heart to be removed and erased. When is the last time you've said to Jesus Christ, thank you for the thorns? Think about your conversations over the past three, four, five months, six, seven, eight months. Things that you've been impassioned about. How many times in the past eight months have the words come out of your mouth, Jesus, thank you for the thorns? How sad it is. So many other things have docked. dominated our attention other than the thorns. Well, when the thorns were placed on Jesus' brow and he died on the cross, the powers of hell crucified him. They thought they had silenced and put out the light of the world. Even Jesus' followers thought that the light of the world had gone out. It was the most sinful and saddest day in the history of the world. But three days later, as the sun began to rise in Jerusalem, something happened in that tomb his buried body began to breathe. Because just as he said, the one who sent me is with me, and he's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. When he died on the cross that day, the crowds mocked him. But when the stone was rolled away, the words of Jesus Christ were validated. God at no time on that cross ever left me alone. Our job is not to worry about outcomes Our job is to focus on obedience. No matter how dark it gets, you can be sure the one who pleases God will never be left alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. The light of the world shines as brightly as it ever has. No one could put you out, Jesus. They could deny you. They could mock you. They could reject you, but they could not extinguish you. You've been shining from the other world in which you lived. You shined on this earth. You are shining now in heaven. You will shine at your return. You are the light of the world. I pray today, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would shine in someone's moral darkness. They would, you would cause the light of heaven to shine on the thorns. And someone who feels here most undeserving, unworthy would see That's who you died for. Thorns were placed on your brow, blood down your scalp for them. The thorns were there there for their salvation. The thorns were there for their forgiveness. The thorns were there for their release from condemnation. The thorns were the key to the gates of heaven. God, please shine your light on somebody today that they would say, Jesus, thank you for the thorns. I believe that you're the light of the world. Come, light up my life. It is in your glorious name that we hope and we trust and we cling and we see. Oh, light of the world, come now in our singing, in our praying, in our responding. Amen.